All right, everybody, welcome back to the Lockdown Red Wings podcast. Today is Tuesday, April 14th, 2020. I am your host, Detroit sports writer Nolan Bianchi, and today we have part one of a very special two-part interview with Russian 5 author and Detroit Free Press scribe Keith Gabe to talk about how the Russian 5 came to be, his role in the conspiracy of getting Sergei Fedorov to defect from Russia, and much, much more. Uh, we talked about on last week's show that we might be taking a look at a team from the 50s this week, uh, one as part of the, the network-wide initiative from the Lockdown Network to kind of remember some of the best teams in franchise history. But we figured nobody was really alive to talk about it. We had the opportunity to interview Keith Gave on a super influential time in Red Wings history, so we figured we would just... Uh, pivot a little bit, make this week about the 90s Red Wings because, I mean, hey, who doesn't love to talk about the 90s Red Wings? So uh, we'll talk a little bit more on tomorrow's show about how that team finally came together and snapped a 42-year cup drought. Be sure to subscribe to that. Uh, also follow us on Twitter at LO underscore Red Wings. We're continuing on our listeners bracket as we look to uh, make our Elite Eight selections later on this week in our 64-man bracket to determine the most influential Red Wing of all time. And if you like this episode, leave us a comment on uh, Twitter, leave us a comment in our iTunes review section, leave us a comment on Google Play, wherever you listen to this podcast, be sure to make your voice heard. And for our last bit of housekeeping, if you haven't already, be sure to check out last week's uh, rewind to the 2002 Red Wings team. We talked with Ken Kale on Wednesday's episode about that 2002 Stanley Cup run. Lots of great stuff coming. Lots of great stuff ahead. We're happy to have you guys along for the ride. And without further ado, Keith Gave. All right, so we now welcome on to the Lockdown Red Wings podcast. He is a longtime Detroit Free Press writer and author of The Russian Five. Join us in welcoming Keith Gave. Keith, how are you doing? I'm well, thanks, guys. How are you guys doing? Not too bad, not too bad. We, uh, we've been reviewing a lot of the old Red Wings teams, a lot of memories throughout team history since the, uh, the shutdown has occurred. And, uh, you know, it's something that we wanted to get into anyways, given the current state of the Red Wings hockey. But you were somebody who was around for all of their glory days uh, and got to see it firsthand. Now, what is your background uh, with, the, with the Red Wings, just with hockey and, uh, and stuff like that? Well, that's a long, you're looking for a long answer, but I, I, you're right. I did, I, I was there for the, you know, the glory years and I had a lot of fun covering the team from really the late eighties to the, uh, uh, the two thousands, uh, when they were pretty good. But my first year covering the Detroit Red Wings was 1985, 86. That might ring a bell to you because the, this season, this horrible season that the Red Wings have been having have had, uh, might be over. Um, it w- as was compared to that season a lot. My first year covering the Red Wings, 1985-86, um, the, the Red Wings won 17 games. They lost 57, and they tied six, and they finished last in the NHL, 21st in a 21-team league with 40 points, and it wasn't even close oh to, the next, to, to the next team. I mean, they, they had, what, 39 points when they when – the, uh, the plug got pulled uh, when they paused the season, and but they had 11 games to play yet. Yeah, I mean, as bad as it was this year, it was worse. My first, they fired two coaches my first year, so I, I mean, I got a baptism under fire very, very quickly. And uh, you know, the, the next year they brought in Jacques Demers, the coach, the funny little French guy, and uh, you know, they uh, they made, made a couple of little deals and so on. Steve Eisman was emerging as. Uh, as a, uh, a a dominant player in the in the league, and uh, they're starting to you know put some chips around them a little bit. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, they got a little lucky. And uh, uh, the first two years that Demers was here in 80, uh, it would have been 87 and 88, they went to the Stanley Cup semifinals and played the Edmonton Oilers, you know, the final four. Uh, got beat by the Stanley Cup champs a couple of times. But, um, uh, in, in, but the playoff format was way different then. That's, you only had to beat a couple of really bad teams in your division to advance. It was divisional play for the first couple of rounds. So uh, they got lucky, uh, and uh, they played some pretty good hockey in those, uh, those uh, early rounds, a um, couple of really dramatic seven-game series and so on. But, um, you know, then they got to, uh, you know, 89. They, got, they, they reached kind of a plateau. They weren't getting any better, and they were kind of getting desperate. Jimmy Devolano, the general manager, had been around for about seven, eight years. And, um, you know, he told the Illiches when he came to, when he was hired from the New York Islanders, Marion Illich said, uh, when they went up to dinner and Marion said, how long do you think, Jimmy, that it's going to take for us to win a Stanley Cup? And Jimmy says, oh, Marion, we should, we should be really competitive. We should be competing for Stanley Cup in about eight years. And she just about lost it over dinner. She said, eight years. My God, I'm going to be an old lady by then. I'm not going to be able to go out on the ice then and so on. And uh, now, you know, eight years had come and gone and they're, uh, still struggling to to put together a, ser- a real serious playoff run with a decent team. So in 1989, that's when they, uh, you know, they took a chance and they, you know, they went off the board and uh, shocked a lot of people and drafted a couple of Russians in that 1989 draft. They got a little lucky with another draft, another uh, one of their Europeans, and um, uh, history began to change pretty quickly for that team after that. Well, shockingly, it ended up taking them 15 years since uh, Devilano arrived for them to capture the ultimate prize. But they came pretty close uh, prior to that, and they were a bona fide star-studded hockey team uh, a lot quicker than 15 years. It was probably, what, 8, 10, would you say? Oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. Sure. I mean, come on. When you, uh, you know, 89, uh, you know, they drafted, uh, that that was just a remarkable draft if you look at that thing. Uh, You know, the... uh, first couple of rounds they drafted serious really good nhl players in round one and round two they got uh, mike sillinger with the first pick and bob bugner uh, who's a coach now somewhere out there uh, uh in the second round both of them uh, sillinger played over a thousand games bugner played almost a thousand games and then they got serious then they drafted <laughs> it was, they, dra- they drafted uh nick listerman in the third round Believe it or not, <laughs> third round, the greatest defenseman of all time. Okay. And then they uh, then they took a chance and they drafted a Soviet player. The earliest a Soviet player had been drafted by an NHL team in the fourth round, a guy named Sergei Fedorov. And then um, uh, the fifth round, they were going to take another Soviet player. It didn't work out, and he wound up somewhere else. But in the eleventh round, they took another one, a guy named Vladimir Konstantinov. When you look at that draft, and it's just it is widely acknowledged as the greatest draft in NHL history. You got you got Hall of Famers, back-to-back Hall of Famers with the third and fourth round picks. And you know what they you know who they almost drafted in the fifth round, right guys? Who's that? Well, <laughs> they had this guy, their European scout Krista Rockstrom really wanted this guy and they went to um they went they they they, they told the uh NHL uh, 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 vice president, a guy named Gil Stein at the time, said, said we're going to draft this guy. And Stein says, no, 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 he's not eligible. He's not eligible. You, if you're going to draft him, you had to take him in the first three rounds. He's not eligible. They said, no. They, the, the rules were real quirky then about drafting international players. Mm-hmm. And the Wings were absolutely certain that this guy was eligible. 
and and they wanted to fight it, but their time was up on the clock. And they said they drafted somebody else in the fifth round and said we're going to take them in the sixth round and we'll fight it out with the NHL. And uh, about three rounds before their pick in the sixth round, the Vancouver Canucks took a guy named Pavel Bure. Oh my! Wow. I can't Can you imagine that, guys? Can you imagine? <laughs> wow. Can you imagine if they, the Wings had drafted uh, Lidstrom, Fedorov, and Burry, three <laughs> Hall of Famers right in a row? Jeez. That's how then, good they, that scouting staff was then, guys. Man, you know, it, it, one of the things that's it's crazy to me, like, why did Jim Devolano decide to start taking a chance on these Russian guys? I mean, you mentioned the fourth round. Sergey Fedorov, that's the highest of players ever been drafted. Certainly, he had the talent to accompany that, but, you know, what made him remain a little bit optimistic? There's definitely some optimism in that selection. You know, give him a little credit. Uh, I'll give him credit, and I'll and, uh, the two uh, ends of the spectrum. The first, he was desperate. He knew he, he, he knew he had to get this team going to save his job. Yeah. And 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 you know, he's also, you know, maybe I'll give him credit for this. He saw the world starting to change. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it was beginning to change. You know, it was 1989. It was shortly after the, uh, shortly after that draft. In, in, uh, uh, in, in the draft was in June at the uh, Met Center in uh, Bloomington, Minnesota. Um, and in a few months later, the Berlin Wall fell, and you know, the Soviet Union started to fall apart. The Iron Curtain, you know, fell, and uh, you know, it 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 didn't fall quickly, and it in the and even after it started to crumble. Uh, the Soviets were really, really good at hanging on to their their most precious commodities, and that was their athletes in, in all the sports, really, but especially the the ones that uh, brought them Olympic gold, the gymnasts and the uh, you know the, uh, the skaters, uh, the, uh, ice, the, the uh, figure skaters, and so on, and certainly uh, the hockey players. They didn't let those people out of their sights, uh, you know, because they wanted to uh, continue the dominance in those sports. But, uh, you know, at that same time, Slavovitisov and Igor Larionov, the two old guys, were starting to stand up to the Soviet regime. They were getting in trouble with their uh, – getting themselves in trouble. Actually, each, each of them were exiled from the team for a while. In the meantime, the Wings are drafting, uh, drafting uh, these younger guys and uh, – you know, the, they, they arranged a couple of defections. The first one, Sergei Fedorov, came over about, uh, you know, 11 months later. And uh, Vladimir Konstantinov came over next. Slavik Kozlov um, came over a year after that. And suddenly the Detroit Red Wings became the Detroit Red Wings. With those three Russians and Nick Lidstrom, uh, Brian Murray was now the coach and general manager. And uh, they began winning a lot of hockey games, a lot of 72 games, uh, um, really, really fun to watch. Created a real buzz in the uh, in the city. That's for sure. The idea of defections for me is so crazy because, like, I wasn't mm-hmm. around for those days, and I've, it's something that I've only learned about through you know videos and reading uh, and, and stuff like that. And I mean, can you just explain to people like the gravity of the what they were trying to do with these Russian players? How do you mean? I'm, I'm not sure I know what you mean. What do you mean just in trying to get them out? How did? Um, yeah, just like the 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 consequences. The uh, well, well, I mean, yeah. Uh, listen, uh, I I can tell I'm way older than you guys, and and uh, uh, you know I was a uh, I was I, I was drafted during the Vietnam War, 
And I didn't want to go to Vietnam uh, like everybody else at the time who was who was being drafted. And, uh, and rather than being, you know, get drafted in the army for two years and certainly wind up in Southeast Asia, I, um, I enlisted in the army for four years on the condition they send me to language school in Monterey, California. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I went to Russian language school. I studied Russian six hours a day, five days a week for a year. And then I went to a intelligence school in Texas for a few months. And then they sent me to West Berlin that's when the city of Berlin still had a wall around it that the Soviets built to keep their people in uh, East Berlin. They didn't want them coming over to the West. And they, so there's a, there was, they put a wall around that city. And uh, my job, I worked at a, at, for the National, National Security Agency. You hear a lot about those guys now. They listen in to all of our conversations. But um, I, I worked for the NSA at a, at a state-of-the-art spy uh, station at the time in the mid-'70s at the height of the Cold War, uh, essentially working in this uh, building with surrounded by antennas and satellite dishes and all kinds of other stuff. Um, and uh, all this exotic electronic equipment inside, uh, trying to keep track of the bad guys, the Russians on the other side of the wall, the Soviets, they were the bad guys. And, um, you know, the, the, uh, the competition, global competition between two nations and between, you know, and, and especially their athletes when it came to uh, the Olympics and, and so on. It just, it, it, it's, it's remarkable, really, the history of, of that era. Um, and I mean, that's why the 1980 Olympic game, uh, the, the Miracle on Ice game was so significant. You know, the, the, a bunch of college kids, uh, American college kids, the NHL didn't play, didn't compete in the Olympics in those years, played mm-hmm. against the mighty Soviet team. They won, you know, the previous, I think, four uh, gold medals in uh, at least three uh, in, uh, uh, in the Olympics. And, uh, you know, the finest collection of hockey players in the world, the Soviet national team, and these college kids beat them. You know, that's why they call it a miracle. That's why, the, you know, Sports Illustrated and the Associated Press called that the most, you know, the, the greatest single sporting event in the 20th century, 100 years of, of sporting, of sports. Um, so that, that's, it, it, so you, you understand why the Russians protected their, the Soviets protected, uh, not protected, um, better, uh, basically held them hostage, mm-hmm. like, like, slaves almost conscripted servants um uh to uh you know they, they, they kept them in a, in a hockey camp uh for 11 months a year they got one month off every year to go spend some time with their families he wrote in his book it's a wonder any of us were able to have any children because we were with uh, with our wives so little um because they were they were re- really sequestered in a camp that they they really couldn't come and go freely at all they couldn't get cars. They didn't have apartments. I mean, it was just, it was, it was crazy. It was a crazy time. Uh, but that, my God, could they produce the athletes over there? The, 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 the hockey players, they were still, it's still the, probably the best developmental program in the world. Although the, uh, the, the program over in uh, Plymouth, the United States developmental hockey program is now the gold standard. Uh, but um Boy, the, the Russians still produce great hockey players. Anyways, it was difficult for those guys to get out. Uh, and um, uh, so when Devlano drafted the first couple of guys, you know, he, he said we it might take some time to get them out. It was five years, even if we, even if it's ten years before we get them out. 
And Sergey Fedorov is going to be 28. He won't be 18. He'll be 28. He's still at the height of his career. He'll still be a pretty damn good hockey player for some time. So they took a chance. And they, and they um, you know, they drafted the first two guys. And basically, uh, uh, Jimmy D at the draft tables said, uh, turn to Jim Lights, the Mike Illich's son-in-law, the executive vice president of the club at the time, said, okay, Jim, um, we drafted these guys. Now it's your job to go get them. And uh, that's the first thing Lights did was call me. And, and I was just going to say, uh, call it serendipity, call it uh, destiny. Turns out those uh, enlisting in the Army all those years back turned out having uh, some impact later on in your career because you were involved in, in the, the scheme to get them over. I'll be perfectly honest. I had no no idea at all anything like that could have possibly happened. Uh, I, I certainly didn't plan it. it the serendipity is the right word. Uh, it just kind of happened. Uh, I made a lot of bad decisions uh, or, or some, some good decisions, some bad, but they all, you know, they took me down this path. I got this, um, you know, background in Russian. I wind up in the newspaper business. I was a news reporter for six or seven years. Um, you know, my first year at the free press, I was on the city desk as a news reporter and the uh, you know, a year or so later, a couple of jobs came up on the sports desk. And of course that's my hometown, Detroit, you know, and uh, a lot of cousins and, you know, uncles and my father and so on read the free press and, you know, kind of missed all the stories I was putting on page one of the newspaper. And uh, now these sports jobs came up and I know how important sports is to Detroit, uh, how, how important sports has always been to our community there. And, um, so these job with the NHL job and the NBA came up uh, uh, open, and I threw my name in the hat with the, I'm sure hundreds of other people around the country uh, for, you know, a couple of major professional beats at a major metropolitan newspaper at the time, and um, um, the sports editor hired me to cover the Red Wings, and uh, so I, so I'm covering the Wings. I got that you know, that first year that we just talked about how bad they were, you know, kind of out of the way. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm three or four years, four years down the road, they start drafting Russian players. And, uh, so that's why, uh, Jim lights about, a, it was about, it was about three weeks after the draft. It was, uh, in the, in uh, July, um, mid to late July, he called and, um, uh, just out of the blue, Keith is Jim lights. He said, yeah, you know, Hi, Jim. How you doing? How can, how can I help you? I, I was a little bit taken aback because the only time I ever heard from Lights ever was when he was pissed off about something that I wrote in the free press. And uh, so I'm a little, you know, a little uh, wondering what, what the heck. Yeah, and he's all sing-songy, cheerful. Hey, how you doing? Uh, wondering if you might have time for, uh, you know, so we, that we could uh, have lunch. I want to run something by you. I said, sure. You want to tell me that, what this is about? He said, he said no, no, no. But let he said, can you make it tomorrow? Can we have lunch tomorrow? I said, yeah, sure. And um, we, uh, I met him at the uh, Elwood Cafe, a little diner right across the street from the Fox Theater at the time. And um, and he sat down. I said, so what, uh, what, what's this about? He said, okay. He said, stop me if at any time I get, if I cross any lines, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to cross any lines or offend yeah, you in any way. And I'm thinking, what the hell is this all about? Yeah, yeah it's very, it, and uh, I'm starting to, I'm leaning back and he said, as you know, we drafted a couple of Russians uh, and uh, Soviets. And, and last month he said, yeah, Jim, I was, 
I was there in Minnesota. I were all about it. The free press. He said, yeah, well, he said, he said, well, I was, we were thinking that, um, um, we, we want to get these guys over here as quick as we can. And said, you know, Russian and you know, our hockey team, you know, the game, you know, the league, you got media credentials and so on. He said, we found out that the Soviet national team is going to have a training camp in Helsinki, Finland in a couple of weeks. And they're going to play a game there. And maybe you could go over there uh, with your media credentials and, uh, and, you know, get in there and kind of interview them. And he's, he puts air quotes around the word interview. And he said, and, and, and maybe you could slip them a couple of letters that you could write for us um, in Russian to explain to these guys that we want them to come over and play hockey for the Red Wings. And I'm, I'm, I'm starting to do the timeout sign with my hands timeout. And I said, <laughs> I said, hold, hold, hold on here. And, and uh, uh, I said, so you want me to pass along a message to these guys that you want them to defect to come to Detroit, North America and play hockey for the Red Wings. He said, yeah, pretty much. They said, so you want me to help you orchestrate a defection? He said, yeah. <laughs> he said, and I, and I'm, and I, I'm, and he said, did I, did I mention we're willing to pay a lot of money? And uh, now I was offended. Um, and he start, he was, he continued to talk, but I was, I, I don't remember the details of what he said for the next couple of minutes because I was kind of mad. Uh, but I did, I do remember the term six figures wow. and I know where that Jeez. starts. I know where that starts. So for, for a guy on a meager sports writer salary in Detroit at the time in the late eighties, that was kind of life changing money for yeah. me. But uh, I, you know, but I was offended enough. I said, Jim, we we have to stop the conversation right now. There's no way I can do this. I said, if I if I did this, I could lose my job at the Free Press. And I like my job. I love my job. I, I'm I'm having the time of my life covering your hockey team for my, you know my home to paper. I grew up reading, um, and uh, I I don't want to put my career in jeopardy. And he said, okay, I understand. Enough said. He said, I just thought it was worth a shot. We'll figure out some other way. And uh, we finished up our soup and sandwich and left. And a couple, you know, I think I couldn't let it go. I'm thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it. I said, you know, man, I worked in the, I worked in the spy business for six months with the NSA, six years with the NSA and in the, you know, the, the, the center of the uh, epicenter of the cold war in, in Berlin, Germany. And, uh, and I never got a really good cloak and dagger assignment. And this is, here's one staring at me in the face. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and I'd read, I read, I did some research. I did, I did a lot of research, uh, a lot of soul searching, a lot of research and, you know, re read about newsmen from the Associated Press, the New York Times, Washington Post and so on, who'd been over there in either wittingly or unwittingly wound, wound up uh, in the middle of, you know, passing messages back and forth from various operatives in the CIA or the KGB or whatever, you know, and it, it happens. It happened. It's I'm, I'm sure it still happens. And um, anyways, I called lights back a couple of days later and I said, I think there might be a way. He said, what do you, what do you think? What do you think? And, and I said, first of all, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to take any money at all. I'll pay my own expenses. I don't want a dime. I said, but I want one thing, and and uh, and I want to make sure I'm sure about this. And 
He said, what's that? And I said, I said, I'll do my best to go over there and pass along a message. I'll write the letters to you for you and everything and, you know, explain uh, everything that you want in it and so on. Uh, but when these guys come over here, when Sergey Fedorov comes over here, I want to be your first phone call. I want the news first for my readers at the Detroit Free Press. I want to be the first one to interview him. I want to be first. I want, I want to have first dibs on all things Russian from now on. And he said, <laughs> deal. And, uh, you know, 10 days later, I was on my, on my way to Helsinki, Finland, you know, on an airplane, writing with my, had my Russian English dictionary out and was writing as fast as I could. Uh, two letters, one to Sergey, one to uh, Vladdy, basically telling them that they wanted, uh, the Wings wanted them to defect, come over. They're going to pay you the same kind of money that they're paying their captain, Steve Eiserman. And, uh, and also, as for every year that you're a member of the Detroit Red Wings, they'll pay your families $25,000 a year, which was tremendous money in, in Soviet Russia at that time, um, for a family to live. And, uh, you know, I wrote those letters and, um, uh, you got to, you know, went from Detroit to Boston, Boston to Copenhagen, Copenhagen to Helsinki, got to Helsinki about four o'clock in the afternoon, um, kind of dead tired. Um, and, uh, I had to find a hockey game in that city, a great big European capital. I don't know where the hell, uh, I, you know, I am where I'm going. Uh, I asked around at the airport, talked to a guy behind the, the glass at the, uh, currency exchange office. He said, Oh, you're looking for hockey. Uh, yeah, uh, there's a game tonight. Uh, the Soviets are playing one of our club teams at the, you name the arena. And I said, oh, great. That's that's exactly what I'm looking for. Is there a hotel nearby? He said, oh, yeah, there's a Radisson Hotel right across the park. So I grabbed my little bag uh, and uh, got ran out, got in a cab, went to the hotel, checked in, took a quick shower, walked across the park. And as I arrived, the, the Soviets were uh, getting off their bus. All right, well, that'll do it for this episode of the Lockdown Red Wings podcast. Be sure to tune back in tomorrow to hear how Keith's story ends. Did he talk to Sergei Fedorov? Did he talk to Vladimir Konstantinov? Lots of great questions that are answered in tomorrow's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Have that ready when you wake up tomorrow. And then buy the Russian 5. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, pretty much any online retailers. You can't leave the house right now. What a better time to sink your teeth into such an essential part of Red Wings history than while we're all sitting here in this quarantine uh, and then, of course, after this episode ends, just tell your smart device to play the most recent episode of Locked On NHL. They've got some great stuff going over there, like we've mentioned in the past. We look forward to seeing you. They look forward to seeing you. It's your team and your league every single day here at the Locked On Network.